You're listening to the Credit Risk Monitor Podcast. Now here are your hosts, Mike Flum and Jerry Flum. Hello, and thank you for listening. I'm Mike Flum. We've got a special episode here of the uh, Credit Risk Monitor podcast. Uh, As many of you guys know, we just recently launched our new flagship supply chain service called Supply Chain Monitor. Uh, We're very excited about it. It is taking a lot of the great things that everyone knows and loves from the Credit Risk Monitor service, applying it to uh, supply chain and procurement use cases based on the feedback from uh, close to 250 large corporations around the world who have already been using our services on the Credit Risk Monitor platform for those use cases. You know, we've spent about three years or so in development on this product, having lots of conversations with beta users from existing clients, and really developing out kind of what content uh, from the Credit Risk Monitor space was important to them, plus, uh, you know, getting their feedback on what sort of content uh, we should be adding to make it uh, a little bit more specific to their use cases. But uh, in general, all of that has culminated in the launch of the product, which happened at the Institute for Supply Management ISM World 2022 in uh, Orlando back at the end of May. So uh, with that, you know, we happen to get pretty, I I hate to say lucky, but certainly fortuitous in the sense of obviously the the, uh, state of the world for supply chain risk has changed dramatically over the last two, two and a half years, actually after we decided to start this project. So developments such as, you know, mounting interest rate inflation, uh, supply shocks, COVID shutdowns for markets such as China, causing even more supply shocks, the Russian-Ukrainian war causing a whole slew of supply shocks in a variety of markets, and also the, just the general you know, reversal in this trend of lean, uh, lean manufacturing, just-in-time inventory, and uh, globalization in general. Before we jump in, just a reminder, if you have any questions or uh, content that you'd like Jerry and me to cover in future episodes, please feel free to email us at podcast at creditriskmonitor.com. And uh, we'll try and take any of those suggestions to heart and really start sourcing our, uh, our next episodes to address any of that. So with that, I'll, I'll turn over to Jerry. Obviously, it's been a long time coming on the supply chain monitor side. Yeah, what are your thoughts on it? I, I, I'd love to get your thoughts maybe macroeconomically to start, since I know that's where you, uh, you tend to be a heavy hitter. So why don't we start there as far as supply chain risk? Okay, thanks, Michael. Uh, look, at the end of the day, we're seeing the ending of two major mantras that have prevailed in in the purchasing world for 40 or 50 years coming to an end. And they are, one, I want to have everything I can sole source supplied. I want to deal with one supplier. I want them to do everything. I want to have my life simple, and I want to have it done only with the best companies that can supply and I want to be able to buy it at the best prices in the world. That's the mantra that was there. The next thing that came about was how do I even do it smarter than that? And that is how do I get just-in-time inventory so that I don't have to tie up any capital in inventory? It comes, you know, 
25 minutes before I needed it shows up and goes into the product. Those were the two major thrusts and the efficiency of the purchasing function in corporations was very, very effective and got us deep into that mode. And in fact, uh, it was an indication that you were a sophisticated buyer or a sophisticated corporate buyer because you could get just-in-time inventory into your process and you were buying the cheapest, most available product and went all over the world to get it. Well, that now turns out to be really difficult thing to sustain. And right now, if you were as a public company were to go to BlackRock or Fidelity or Bank America and you were explained to those investment firms or Chase Manhattan Bank or Bank America, for funding and you said, hey, I have sole sauce to one person in the Orient and it gets there just in time. I would venture to say that most finance guys and most investment guys are going to get are going to sell you stock and not want to finance you unless it's under uh, very prohibitive interest rates or costs for doing business uh, because everybody recognizes now the amount of risk that policy has is excessive. And so that's been a major, major change. It didn't happen overnight. It was preceded by an enormous amount of debt buildup all over the world. So the instability of this major change in purchasing was on a platform of severe over-indebtedness all over the world. It isn't just in America. It's worse in China. It's bigger and bigger in Japan. Every country, for the most part, you go around the world, has severe over-indebtedness in relationship to its GDP or its relationship to its historical amount of debt on its, uh, borrowings to supply and support its growth. So these are huge changes. And so we, we had 250 customers out of our thousands of large corporations around the world who were using our existing uh, credit risk monitor service, even though it was designed for credit risk, we're using it in purchasing. And this started about eight or nine years ago as we built this a large usage on corporations and we started to find out what did they like about our service that they were using it and what improvements did they want? What new things did they want in a service that was going to be different? And that resulted in our building over the last two and a half, three years, our new supply chain monitor so that it addressed these peculiar reasons of why people were using our service and what new stuff did they need in there that would make this function even better better or more appropriate for them. And that's how we developed this. So this has been a project of six or seven years and driven by our concern that we were seeing a huge, massive uh, misdirection of purchasing and supply side policy. Jerry, I just want to throw in one other like level of complexity on your analysis here, because the sole sourcing aspect and going to, you know, for instance, uh, the Asian markets to source products out of China and et cetera, you know, that's one part of it. But I think the other thing that uh, we saw at least over the last 20 to you know 40 years of globalization and lean, you know, lean Six Sigma style manufacturing approaches was the elongation of supply chains in themselves, right? So now it was individual components being sourced from all over the world coming to different hubs to have XYZ, you know, added, added value manufacturing provided to then going to the next link in the chain. And so 
it's even more dangerous than just sole sourcing because the complexity of the system in itself creates a certain level of risk. So you actually just have seen many more chains within that or many more links within that chain than you have at other parts in history where you just didn't have such complex systems behind the sourcing of individual components to bring them into manufacturing hub. So all of those things have kind of come together for a perfect storm on top of the fact that then you also have mounting inflationary risk, interest rate risk, and in general, recessionary risk, which is pulling back everybody, right? So I think it's yeah. a layering of those two effects as well. Well, there's one other thing, Michael, that's happened, and that is uh, there's been a general change in American foreign policy over the last six or seven years, and that is America is sort of pulling back from being the policeman for the world. Everything in the world economy over the last 60 or 70 years after the end of World War II was the allowance of shipping by water so dramatically lowers the cost, the transportational cost of moving goods to a country or out of a country to other markets. In other words, if you're in Malaysia and you're making a certain type of tube and that tube uh, would be available to people in the Malaysia or Indochina marketplaces uh, because you had to ship it by truck or train. Once you could ship it by water, and put it on ships, you now are able to cut that cost of the transportation of the product to an end market by almost 80 or 90%. That kind of opens up huge markets all over the world. And you can now develop a large scale manufacturing facility for that particular tube in Malaysia and now sell it in New York, sell it in Buenos Aires, sell it in South Africa, because you could now ship in the world over a transportation system that's very, very cheap as the boats got bigger, bigger, bigger. We got into containerization. And so it's massive. Now, what that depends on means freedom of the seas, freedom to be shipping any place in the world. And the major guarantor of that all over the world was the United States Navy. Well, the Americans are no longer in that game. We're pulling back. And so now this freedom to move goods over the water, huge distances and large scale is starting to change. And therefore, the cost of transportation is going to go up dramatically because it's just too expensive now to have an alternative to the U.S. Navy to guarantee freedom of the seas. Now, I know that sounds like an old concept to people. The freedom of the seas we've lived with in our generation for the last 30 or 40 years. But it is not the historical perspective of mankind over the previous thousands of years. And therefore, as this degrades a little bit, uh, now all of a sudden being able to put your manufacturing where in fact your end market is, is a much more important function than it was over the previous 40 years. It's now more important to pay maybe a drop more or more, but you have to have your major suppliers geographically safe and close as opposed to far away because they're cheaper. So you see this as actually like almost the end of the entire Brent Woods era, if you will, at that point. Yeah. Then. Yes. I guess I, I can see that. I mean, certainly we've seen, uh, at least in the recent history, you know, almost a return of some levels of, you know, piracy, for instance, around Somalia, right?
right? That certainly didn't seem like it was uh, going on. The same, maybe not. Maybe it was, but it certainly wasn't as newsworthy, you know, 20 years ago. So can certainly see some aspects of that. I think you made some interesting points, too, about the idea of nearshoring. And whether or not I, I, I think it depends on the situation and the market in terms of what you're trying to do in t- as far as bringing your, you know, your, your manufacturing actually into market or near market making sense. But certainly for things like the U.S. market, I can certainly see that making you know, a lot of good economic sense where the extra costs in labor you make up by just strictly having the inventory and the transportation costs for final goods being significantly lower than they are relative to something that's manufactured you know, halfway across the world. Um, yeah. The other thing, too, I would point out is I think right now there's actually a premium to availability, right? So your product is available. Certainly right now we still see you know, the remnants of penned up demand, right? That's starting to pull back, I think, with some of the more recent consumer, uh, you know, consumer figures that have come out from the uh, the Fed and Treasury over the last couple of weeks. But to that point, there's still a premium if you've got product and you got the right product at the right time. People are willing to pay up for that. No, that's a good point, Michael. Look, uh, this is a really transitory situation right now because as, uh, as we get into inflation, this huge debt pile all over the world is going to put such severe strain on countries and corporations and final demand for product. And the other factor that's really large in is China. China is this huge 1 billion, 200 million people uh, or 250 million people. And all of a sudden, China, and it's already baked into the system. There's nothing you can do about it. China's population is coming down dramatically. It's going to go from a million, 250 million, a billion, 250 million people to possibly 800 million or 850 million people. And it's not like this is a wild guess. We know how many eight-year-olds are in China now. We know exactly how many four-year-olds are in China. There's no more new four-year-olds that can be produced in China. They've been here for the last four years. So the demographics of China are coming down dramatically. And and the reason for that is as populations get economically more sustainable, childbearing uh, by women goes down for everybody. Uh, not only just for the Chinese, it comes down for Europe. I mean, population in, in Germany, France, Italy, all of these populations are now starting to grow less quickly and in some cases now starting to contract. And also the amount of young people who can support uh, the uh, pension systems of the large groups of older people left in these countries uh, is going to create enormous financial and crisis policies at these countries. And so the meat is going to be coming down and therefore products uh, are going to uh, be in oversupply for some part of the time and then get it into, you know, real serious constraint for the whole aspect of where our supply chains coming from. The Chinese situation is um, a majorly catastrophe and in part it explains why the Chinese who have pursued a policy of long distance planning or long term planning have now in the last 10 years made some very, very difficult moves for all the countries that they do business with and all the countries that surround them out in Asia. All of a sudden, China's like getting to be an aggressive player in the game. So why are they doing that? Because this 
population contraction and the huge amount of debt there means that they are facing monumental problems and they have to try and fix this in the short term. And the only way to possibly do it is to outgrow some way everybody else. And that's in a very aggressive policy. And so the whole world of the Asian markets is changing. And that's going to mean supply is going to change. Well, and to that point, I mean, you know, one of the other options available dealing with population slash, you know, demography issues like what you're describing in China is, you know, through the influx of actual immigrants, right? Certainly yeah. been something the United States has used for a long-term, you know, long-term fix on some of our own birth rate issues. But, you know, you combine that with what's going on with Chinese lockdowns and you know, the fact that that border has essentially been closed for two years, there can't even be an influx of, you know, non-residents right, to make up yep. some of that uh, that workforce constraints. I mean, you've seen the same sort of, for instance, with Saudi Arabia, right? The majority of the workforce is actually Indian laborers. Right. Uh, I, I, I support your point of view. I think it's... Uh... Uh, this is a this is a major sea change, and supply chains are going to have to react to it. Like you know, one of the things that we built into the new service is how do you know what your spend risk is? You know, like how do you know how vulnerable your spending on supplies are by location. Uh, geographic location? How do you break out industry and geographic location? In other words, by particular industry and uh, geographic location. I mean, we now have built into this system so many different ways now to slice and dice your exposure to various parts of the world or various industries to parts of the world. And also all of the financial risks that are going on uh, to people who supply your suppliers. Uh, you know, have a statement that we use on the credit risk side of the business. And uh, when we speak to risk offers around the country, we always say to them, God, we're unlimited usage, which is part of our supply chain product and our credit risk product. We, we say, look, if you pay us, you have unlimited access. You can put in all you want. And what we want you to do is not only put in your customers, if you're on the credit risk side, we want you to put in the customers of your customers because we're going to follow them for you for free. Same thing's true on the supply side. We're saying, look, give us your spend numbers and we'll tell you where your risks are. And we'll also help you look at the suppliers of your suppliers. If you start to break us, break it down with us, we can filter backwards so that you get lead-ons because that's where the game is going now. How do you use the data that we've accumulated all they're all over. How do you use it to manage to level one and level two? And that's what we've been designing into this system. And it follows our normal business mantra, which is we are always going to price our products so they are lower in price than they are the utility of the buyer. In other words, we purposely design and price with that in mind. We don't design and price on how can we make the most amount of money on every sale. We don't design that way. We don't run that way. And I think people now have 20 some odd years of experience in dealing with us and going to see we live our business model. It's not an idle, you know, marketing thing, you know, we're cheap. We, we don't deal with that. I think if you were to look at any credit risk monitor subscriber, uh, they will tell you that it is the best dollar for dollar purchase by design. I'm sorry. I, uh, 
transgressed into a different area. Excuse me. No, but I, I think you you know you made a good uh, a good transition there. You know, with about two or three minutes left to go, I just want to quickly give you know the listeners a few points um, of distinction between you know the supply chain monitor uh, platform versus the credit risk monitor platform. And you already kind of highlighted a few of them. So you know, one of the big distinctions is that ability to to do stratification of risk by not only quantity of suppliers but also by spend dollars. And part of that is involving you know the ability for subscribers and prospects to actually upload their own metadata as part of those uh, supplier lists, including things like spend, criticality, you know, direct or indirect, as well as other items. You know, if you wanted to put in something like, for instance, if you happen to know your revenue at risk associated with that supplier, you know, it's a great thing to also put in or, you know, whether they're tier one, tier two, et cetera. We allowed a lot more flexibility with that, which gives you the ability to kind of do those cuts that Jerry was talking about on, you know, an industry basis, a geographic basis, maybe some combination of that, maybe some combination of that with something like critical suppliers only. You know, those are all possible now within this platform. Um, another good thing to point out would be, you know, obviously we're talking about a lot from the macroeconomic, but the country level risk, um, you know, we tried to expand out the risk offerings um, associated. So they're not just strictly financial. It's clearly our bread and butter is financial, but we wanted to make this a little bit more broader based on feedback from uh, hmm. beta. So, point, you know, man. one of the things that we uh, we put into here is actually um, some of the Economist Intelligence uh, Unit data. They actually do ratings on the comp on the core. I'm sorry, on the country level for about 180 countries worldwide, covering a variety of different risk classes, including uh, you know security risk, political stability risk, political efficacy risk. Uh, legal and regulatory risk, macroeconomic, foreign trade and payment risk, physical risk, tax policy risk, you know, labor risk, as well as infrastructure. And in each of those, they can get even more granular. So if you are looking for things like, you know, information, maybe help with strategic sourcing decisions for what markets you want to nearshore into or what markets are worth pursuing, even from a sales positioning. These are really good in, insights into what's going on within that country that you should maybe take into account when you're making those decisions or making those strategic plans. Additionally, we also expanded our uh, our peer analysis uh, significantly. So we, you know, we now have the ability to do peer analysis across all five of our scoring models, including the Frisk and the Pace score, which we previously could not do. Uh, still, you know, over 40 uh, ratios that you can compare. But we also have a really easy way to do graphical charting comparisons of up to five suppliers at a time, really helping out with RFPs, you know, annual reviews for comps, uh, et cetera, that finding alternative suppliers. So another really big component that was asked for by subscribers. The yeah. final two I'll highlight, you know, private company solutions. We already have, you know, some of these for the, the credit risk side, but obviously on the supply chain side, there's buyer power involved. So if you happen to have that buyer power with your vendors, you know, this is a much easier position to uh, possibly request you know, those private company financial statements, we can do a variety of things with that to assist you in kind of scoring them, uh, whether you want to use, you know, our confidential financial statements tool to do your own data entry, or even inviting your counterparties to our confidential financial statements portal, where they can either upload or in input their own financial data. But again, great way to kind of get a, a frisk score, private company frisk score, potentially even financial ratio spreads. And uh, you can then compare and contrast, you know, that particular private business on the same scoring models as public businesses to really make that a, co a cohesive and consistent analysis. The final thing I'll just highlight is, you know, we spent a lot of time expanding out um, some of the alerting mechanics 
that are available within supply chain monitor. So, you know, aside from just our typical alerts that come down to financial statements, you know, the posting of new 8Ks or, you know, eight, uh, 10, 10Ks or 10Qs, at least from the uh, SEC standpoint, we've also broadened that out to cover a lot of other things. Uh, generally, supply chain risks, including you know, environmental, natural disasters and accidents, uh, geopolitical, legal and foreign affairs risks, cybersecurity risks, commodity risks. Uh, we talked about piracy and hijacking. That's one of those risks, economic risks. We've also kind of expanded these things out with the addition of weather support as well. So we, uh, we've picked up weather information from all over the world. We can tie that actually directly back to locations of your suppliers. So if you were concerned about things like earthquakes, you know, and fires and hurricanes, for instance, taking out uh, strategic suppliers, you can actually get real-time alerting on that uh, as part of our service now. So lots of stuff that we just dropped on you guys, but we do really think this product has some really great extensions of our, you know, our skill sets as far as financial analysis, but also extending into other risk patterns. And we really think that it's a, uh, you know, maybe not the be-all end-all solution when it comes to supply chain risk, but it's certainly a broad step in the right direction. And uh, we know from our own experience in the market, there's a need for this financial risk component within that analysis. And as Jerry said, you know, you could find the single best manufacturer of any particular component, but if they have a major bankruptcy uh, risk, you know, within their uh, within their financial, it doesn't matter how good they are at producing that part and how good the quality is. To go out of business, you're stuck holding the bag trying to find an alternative source. All things considered, you know, while those critical questions about whether or not they meet the spec and standard to, you know, meet my requirements, those are really big concerns when you get into the engineering and the bill of material sides of, uh, of sourcing and supply and manufacturing. But at the end of the day, you got to also make sure that you're doing business with stable and sustainable businesses. So you know, my, this is what we can help you. I want to cut you off just for one second. And that is, yeah. look, if a company has financial difficulty, they're going to cut back on their R&D. They're going to cut back on their quality control. They're going to cut back on building um, more and more plants because they have to. So at the end of the day, what we really are saying to people, God Almighty, we can make a very efficient across the all over the world. We're following 10, 20 million companies. We can tell you up front who is having these kinds of risks so that you can concentrate not only on great suppliers because of the quality of the product, but also their ability to be sustainable. And I got to tell you, it's just a waste of time to spend an enormous amount of time going out and visiting uh, companies who are not sustainable. I mean, they're going to have to change and they're not going to change for the good. And so, you know, I just think people have to be aware of this. Number two is I want to say something else. We now have, oh, I don't know, pretty close to 35 to 40 percent of the Fortune 1000 as our subscriber base, plus well over a thousand of the largest companies all over the world is a part of our subscriber base. So we already have a huge base of corporations that we already deal with and understand what we're doing. And I can also tell you, I believe that if you look at what we're doing and then check out what we're going to charge, you're doing a real disservice if you're not at least looking at that trade-off of dexterity of what we do compared to what we're even going to charge you for what we do. Yep. And I think that's a great 
great way to kind of conclude this. So just for everyone's knowledge, uh, we are currently offering some early bird specials for early adopters, but uh, I think you'll be very surprised with the price points that we're charging as Jerry, you know, alluded to. Um, our main goal here is to get efficacy, you know, by the, uh, by the, the user in excess of the cost. So that's the big deal with us, uh, whether it's credit risk monitor or supply chain monitor. So with that, why don't we wrap this up? It's been a pleasure uh, chatting with you, Jerry, on all things supply chain and kind of discussing the launch of this supply chain monitor product. Again, if anybody has any comments or questions on any of the content we've covered today or future suggestions for us to cover, please email us at podcast at creditriskmonitor.com. And uh, as always, thank you guys for tuning in. Jerry and Mike signing off. Bye-bye, guys and gals. Thank you for listening to the Credit Risk Monitor podcast. Want to ask Mike and Jerry a question? Email podcast at creditriskmonitor.com. And for more information on how Credit Risk Monitor can protect your portfolio from financial risk, check out creditriskmonitor.com.